This is Audience of One, and I'm your host, Spencer Kier. This podcast is a venue for me to explore my curiosities through combos with leading thinkers and builders. We talk about philosophy, learning, tech, parenting, entrepreneurship, health, and more. Today's guest is Rohit Krishnan. He's a former McKinsey consultant and venture capitalist and author of the blog Strange Loop Canon. Enjoy. You're an engineer, investor, operator, you're a writer, mm-hmm. uh, a philosopher of sorts. Um, why have you been drawn into such a broad set of, of interests? And what do you think the trade-offs have been, both personally and in your career, um, not having focused on a single thing? People think of the choice between going deeper versus going broader as like a decision you make. And at least I'm coming around to the point of view that quite often it's less of a decision and more something a little bit innate. You know, some people just want to do one versus the other. The reason I was drawn to the breadth side of it quite often is because I get bored pretty easily and I like to jump from topic to topic. Um, selfishly. And I guess outside in, I would say that going from topic to topic actually gives you a different point of view and insight into the topics that you're entering that you don't get otherwise. Um, Like, I don't know, having run public equities or hedge fund gives you a different point of view into startup investing. Uh, Having done operations gives you a different point of view. Having done investing gives you a different point of view into, you know, writing there is enough similarities because almost all of these are meta games, right? And like you get better at one when you try and do something else as opposed to do the same thing over and over. I mean, the latest example is, um, I mean, in writing for sure, but more broadly, I suppose, I've been trying to pick back up my my rusty coding skills just because it's there's a bunch of problems that I find interesting. And I was like, all right, I mean, I think the tools are good enough now that all of the grunt stuff that I really hated, I don't need to worry about anymore. So I can actually do that. And I've been doing that. And I think the fact that I've worked sort of in companies or like served clients or served as an investor is hugely helpful because it makes you less likely to fall down into rabbit holes. You kind of focus on the problem that you want to solve and you can kind of find, you know, five different slices to find the easiest way to kind of go after it as opposed to sort of falling into one trap and then kind of getting subsumed under. I mean, some of these are the same things that I tried to do a few years ago and it was much harder. And I remember failing at them just because at a certain effort to reward ratio, you're like, all right, so if I want to do this, I'm going to have to spend like, I don't know, a month studying up on something and I don't have that kind of time. But then you find shortcuts around it or different ways to slice through them because you're viewing the problem in a different angle which is a long-winded way of saying that I think there's a huge amount of transferable skill set that you get from one domain that if you're able to apply to another domain, I think that's hugely helpful. The downside, of course, is that, um, well, there's two downsides, one sort of real and one perceived. The real downside is the fact that um, there are certain problems for which like, you get true mastery only if you spend a decade in them, I think. like. You've spent a decade in certain problems, you inherently get a much deeper level of mastery than you can get otherwise, and you're kind of sacrificing that a little bit. Uh, this is especially true of domains where um, like the depth comes from continual repetition with feedback, you know, whether that is um, 
law and accounting or whether that's medicine or whether that's coding, right? I mean, in all of them, you can find that. Coding is less so because the environment changes quite a lot, but like it's kind of true in all of them or physics or whatever. Um, but if you're kind of skipping, like sometimes you do not have that level of, I don't know, intrins intricate knowledge of that system, um, which is a bit of a drawback. The second and the perceived drawback in some ways is that if you do it, like you become very hard to pigeonhole, uh, which can be a bad thing, right? I mean, it depends on what kind of life you like, but becoming hard to pigeonhole also means that it becomes hard for folks to kind of look at you and say, oh, it's the writing guy or like it's a phys physics guy or whatever. Like it just it just makes it hard to put a brand around you. Um, I'm not hugely worried about it, but I do occasionally think about it and be like, should I make it more explicit? And then I think about it for a little while and I'm like, I don't really know what I would make more explicit beyond following the interests that I have. So I kind of trust that the dots will connect when I look back in 10 years and not worry about it too much. Very much the same way in this, this podcast is, uh, is kind of an ode to that. Um, in that same vein, what what is the meta game you're playing or the thing you're optimizing in life that this pursuit of breadth is in service of? Or is it as simple as what you just said? I'm a curious person. I'm pulling on the threads of my curiosity. It's pretty much the latter. Um, I feel like a lot of the articulations of meta games people play effectively come down to curiosity in any way. I've kind of significantly increased my credence on how important curiosity is over the last few years, if only because like, you know, amongst a certain type of person, you know, uh, highly STEM educated type person, shall we say, you like creating rational systematic ways of breaking down your goals or thought process and creating sort of a list, right? To say like, A, therefore B, therefore C. And once that becomes part and parcel of your identity, it becomes, um, you find yourself doing that quite a lot also for things like your life or your career. You know, I'm really good at maths and therefore I should go off and do this. Um, I think tempering that a little bit with like, what are you actually interested in is, I think is hugely important. If only because if you do the things that you're interested in, chances are that you will be able to do them for longer, chances are that you will actually like doing them. Um, both of which, especially in today's environment is incredibly important if you do want to achieve something or even if you don't have to achieve something, you find that um, the path you're following is more interesting. I mean, this is kind of a little bit um, synonymous with the pathless path, right? That my friend Paul writes about or his, that his book was about that entirely goal-oriented focus on why are you doing what you're doing or what you should do kind of detracts from the fact that for a lot of these things, the goals are amorphous. You don't really know what the shape it looks like. And instead, it's the path that's the more interesting part. Um, so my I don't really know what my metagame is beyond find things that are interesting and kind of do them. And in the pursuit of doing them, hopefully create some new knowledge or new ways of looking at things or help a bunch of people. But like, I don't think any of them work very well as a meta game that you want to play that stands alone if your innate curiosity was not a driver that sits behind it. 
you're a, a parent of two. Um, and I imagine, although you don't want to forcibly instill this kind of framework or view of the world on your children, um, I, I imagine you want to create space, uh, guardrails for them through which they can explore their curiosity. How are you trying to foster that or create that environment? It's a very good question. It's something I think about quite a bit and I don't have a good answer. Um, I think to a large extent, I think it boils down towards you providing them a lot of opportunity to kind of experience a bunch of things and noticing when they like something and then you try to do a little bit more of that. Um, is it sufficient? I don't know. I don't think you can ever tell because there are no A-B tests uh, in this world, right? Especially with kids. Uh, whether that's necessary, I still don't know. Like, because there, if you look at the people who are successful in name metric, like their upbringings are pretty radically different um, from, you know, tiger parenting all the way to like feral children and everything in the middle, right? And like from all sorts of different walks of life, different countries, different uh, religions, socioeconomic backgrounds, etc. Yes, there are like broad patterns of, you know, if you're from a upper middle class wealthy family in the West, your chances of succeeding certain things are higher. But if you strip that out and just ask yourself, like, given where you are, what are the things you should be doing? I'm not sure that the variations are all that predictive in the sense of like, you know exactly what you need to do. So I kind of, since there is no good answer, I've kind of stripped it back and said like, all right, so there's no great answer in which case my job is effectively to act a little bit like a guiding, whatever, it's like a guiding principle. Um, I'm trying to do effectively like a gradient descent with them to figure, to help them figure out the things that they're interested in. Some of that will require uh, exposure to a bunch of different things. And then like, they let me know <laughs> what they like, right? Um, and some of it will require me to try and help them figure out things which are okay to do versus not okay to do like you know whatever fighting in school or something um we'll see how successful they are but at least that's the kind of broad philosophy that i have um so far i have to admit that like having the philosophy does make some parts of life much easier because you're not focused on a goal right you're not like I don't know, you got to get A's in class or like you got to go win that race or whatever. It just kind of strips that out and you kind of start asking yourself questions like, does he like it? Does he enjoy it? Does he want to do more of it versus less? And then you kind of anchor on that to push more. Um, at the very least, it seems to keep the kids happier. So early days, but uh, that's at least the philosophy. Probabilism is is kind of one of the key lenses through which you view the world. Um, and I think it's actually intimately connected to this idea of, of curiosity. Um, but human OS, our operating system, doesn't mesh well with this idea of uncertainty, lack of control, the unknown. How do you kind of reconcile these two and uh, override your operating system so that you can navigate reality accordingly? I'm not sure I'm very good at overriding the operating system. I don't think most people are. Uh, but I think like, I mean, this is this is one of the few places where I actually do have a relatively well thought out philosophy and I'm not entirely sure whether it's falsifiable, but it does seem to help me. So um, 
I mean, let's take a couple of straw man positions, right? Position number one is that you feel, you know, you have at any given moment, a holistic, whatever set of actions that you can take in order to pursue any kind of goal or whatever that it is you want to do. Each one of them has a certain probability of kind of helping you achieve that goal. You theoretically have the ability to play like a multi-amp bandit game and kind of choose the correct option and, you know, optimize your way through life. Um, we use this kind of thought process in a whole set of situations, like name your situation, you know, career choice or like investing in, uh, in the markets and like everything in between, you do kind of use these situations. Uh, my theory has always been that like, if you think about the world or socioeconomic system or, you know, your life as a bit more of a complex adaptive system, you can you can still generate probabilities from individual circumstances to kind of try and play the multi-amp bandit game, but the probabilities in each one of those arms are, I mean, at best they're indicators of something that has happened before rather than a you know, property of the system itself. What that means is that for any practical purpose, those probabilities are unreliable and that they shift quite often. So to me, like if you're, if your so if your question is about i want to optimize my way through this path for you know any value of x i just don't think that's likely to happen i think that's a bit of a fool's errand um if your question is that i do want to stop myself from feeling super certain about what i need to do and think a little bit more probabilistically i think that's a great thing to do um, especially on the margins, right? So to me, probabilism is very much sort of an antidote to forced certainty that you do kind of find yourself by creating very clear, narrow paths that you kind of, you know, let your logic free range towards rather than like an intrinsic property of the world in some way where you say like, if I actually could list down all of the possibilities and put probabilities against them, I could actually optimize my way to create like outcome X. I'm not entirely sure that the world works like that. I mean, it's okay, right? We still use it in all sorts of places. I mean, I don't know, the world of medicine or half of science or most of finance is kind of intricately involved in you creating particular distributions you think are valid. And they are until they're not. <laughs> because the thing that you see as a distribution itself is not like an intrinsic property of that system. And this perhaps is a whole much deeper philosophical debate, but like, it's uh and like extreme it's some it's a property that emerges from the fact that there's a whole bunch of subcomponents pinging off against each other and therefore you get some properties so i don't know like i think from a personal life standpoint i'd remain relatively agnostic and relatively happy knowing that i'm never going to be able to kind of optimize my way through this maze which means paradoxically to your point like you have to create a little bit of heuristics right you have to get some heuristics to say like do I want to do this or not? And some of those heuristics end up being pretty helpful. Like you don't want to do things that are, that have um, insane levels of downside that stop you from playing the game ever again, which is like, yeah, that sort of makes sense. Cause no matter what the expected EV calculation says, there are certain gambles that you shouldn't take because you might not trust the payoff uh, distribution. Um, or it says like you should, try and enjoy to our prior question of like the path that you're following on. Because if you know that the payoff distribution makes and the matrix is very sensible, then 
you can kind of ignore the path. You can just focus on the goals and you can actually multiply things through to kind of get where you want to. If you don't know that, then all of a sudden, the only way to get to any kind of unknown path is by you actively sort of trying things out. So it makes you a little bit more open to experimentation, uh, a little bit less open to sort of doing insane stuff, so to speak. Um, a little bit more open to the fact that you're wrong quite often in terms of trying stuff out, a little bit more open to learning. Cumulatively, I think it works out pretty well. As an investor, uh, your your job is to kind of predict the probabilities or the, or the chance of something occurring in the future better than, than someone else. What is the kind of future that that you want to see in the world and the delta between that and what you actually expect to see? Um, I, I don't want it to be the question to be portrayed as like a dystopian versus utopian view, but um, what what is kind of the world that you think you're investing in versus the one that if you had control, you would bring about? Uh, I'd push back. I think like most investors don't actually invest in the world that they want to see. I think they invest in the world that they think is likely to come about, which is sort of a agreed. Very, and I think that's the that's the delta it. I'm trying to to analyze. Like, as I mean, as an investor, like venture investing is in some ways. I mean, if you strip out the mythology, it's a very simple game, right? It's like you're trying to put X dollars into sort of a company with the hope that, you know, seven to 10 years from now, you can get like five X the dollars back. That's that's the game that you're playing. And in order to play that game, you've got to make a bunch of assumptions. And since all of the dollars that you're putting in are net new, like these companies don't actually exist or like, you know, they're very nascent and the money is actually going towards building something. So you're effectively betting that the dollars you put in will go towards building something that will return you five extra dollars close to a decade from now. How do you get there? You need to trust that the way that the dollars are apportioned, some of them will get you a thousand X and most of them will go to zero X just because building anything is hard. That's the kind of underlying ethos. Beyond this, whether the dollars go towards building, I don't know, like blue bottle coffee or whether it goes towards building SpaceX is relatively relevant. Mostly because like you don't really know what the probabilities are, right? I mean, you kind of place a bet saying whatever, 5% chance of upside, 60% chance of like, like median or, I mean, you can create these numbers, but most of these numbers are a little bit of like, you know, you're kind of putting your finger up there and trying to put some numbers against your intuition that like, Oh, it has a chance of going really large, but most likely it will fail or some version of that, right? And the reason it doesn't quite work is because you kind of benchmark those against what sort of the world or the market is telling you and the market changes all the time. So there might be times when the market's telling you, hey, this type of company is going to get really, really large and you bet on that basis and then the market changes its mind, but your bets are still illiquid. So it doesn't make sense. So I think the investor's job is kind of quite different to thinking about what the future state of the world ought to look like. Now, from my personal point of view, from like a, whatever, you know, if I was Caesar and had to kind of make some kind of decision, um, I think I'm a pretty big techno optimist in this case. So a lot of the regular stances that get ascribed to them do kind of fall through to me. I think my big change from status quo would probably fall into sort of a few different buckets. Bucket number one is that across the board from 
private to public investments, I would be far more comfortable with failure. Because um, I think our our discomfort with failure is what creates a huge amount of bureaucracy as well as sort of a huge amount of work to try and, you know, person A trying to convince person B that this is not going to fail when neither of them actually know what's going on instead of sort of trying things out. It's a, it's a relatively big problem. I think we are, we as a society, we as investors, we as, you know, in the public sector, private sector have become incredibly risk averse in a lot of these types of investments, which just doesn't, it's like on an individual basis, it might make sense, but from a collective basis, it's pretty bad for us. I think that's one bucket that I, you know, I'd like to turn the dial there a little bit more and say like, hey, if you fail, that's okay. It doesn't matter. I mean, it doesn't matter whether you fail on a $20 billion public investment or like a $2 million private investment. I think like the same things should scale, right? I think is the Bezos quote of like, as the company gets larger, the scale of your failures also has to get larger because otherwise you're not taking enough at bats. Um, number two, I think is like the second thing I would really like to see to kind of, um, change sort of the scale a little bit is like much deeper communication and collaboration between the people who are trying to do individual bits and pieces of work in the world. Cause I think one of the facets of modern world that is super interesting is that like, we kind of succeeded in what we wanted to do, like in whatever the fifties and sixties, right? I mean. Almost all technologies have exploded. We have kind of dug, dug much deeper into most of them, everything from, you know, whatever, physics to chemistry, to biology, to whatever, to computer science, you kind of have enough depth there. But if you want to kind of get any, like if you think of a matrix where the same things apply across the rows and columns, and you want to look at any intersection there and you want to say like, hey, how do we kind of push that forward? It's much harder because the number of people who have expertise in one oftentimes don't have expertise in another and they barely meet each other to kind of exchange any ideas or create something. Um, I think that I don't have a pithy way of figuring out exactly how to solve that beyond creating a much larger number of ways in which these people can actually ping off against each other. But I think that just genuinely would be helpful. As a corollary, in order to make that happen, you probably also need to create ways for them to kind of do basic stuff, you know, swap data with each other or how actually be able to talk to each other. But I think, I don't know, that's kind of what we are working towards, right? I mean, that would be helpful to have. Um, number three, I think it's like, I don't know, I've kind of written about it somewhere, I think, but like, I feel almost every practitioner would do well to spend a little bit more time with the theoreticians and every theoretician will do better to kind of spend a little bit more time with somebody who's practicing something just because like they ask very different questions. I think a lot of theoretical work kind of dives deeper into like, does this actually work or can we prove it important questions? And almost every practitioner kind of asks questions about like, what can I do with this? Or does this actually work in life? And they kind of, you need a bit of both, right? Because if you don't have both, then like the, the, the you're not going to be able to push the frontier forward. And I think because both of these worlds kind of stay very separately from each other at this moment, you know, it just doesn't really work. And you do need this question to happen continually during the process, as opposed to like once right at the end. I mean, I have, I have conversations occasionally with like university spin out sort of stuff. And they're like, oh yeah, yeah, we've kind of done the hard work. Now we need to kind of spin it off and just make it into a commercial company as if it's like, yeah, of course. I mean, we did the hard work now, just package it and sell it. And it's like, no, 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 that's like, that is an entirely different world with equal or more difficulty to what you have actually been saying. 
So, but you wouldn't know that, right? Because like, you it's not like a it's not like a relay race where you just hand off and walk away. You do have to kind of do it hand in hand. I think that would be extremely helpful. I feel like a little bit more action bias across the board, but it like a little bit more actual interchange of saying like, you know, what can we do versus like, you know, what does it take to do what we want to do? I think you touched on two key areas of kind of inefficiencies in connecting human capital. Uh, we, we've gotten much better with the advent of the internet uh, in connecting people, but th there's still a long ways to go there. Um, related to that, you've written extensively about the need for uh for better kind of granting entities or programs um to you you have a an awesome essay that people should check out but there there's a lot of room for improvement around granting and funding individuals and not just uh companies and specific ideas can you can mm -hmm. you talk more about that and kind of what the bottlenecks or the limitations are to getting more people to fund other people i think in particular mega millionaires and, and billionaires the granting of um, capital in the art and scientific world is a bit of a mirror image to, you know, venture capital in the investment commercial world, uh, technology world. The reason the latter can scale, um, although it's still a bit of an argument as to how much it can scale, but the reason the latter can scale is because you look at um, uh, uh, venture capital, the input is dollars and the output is also dollars, right? So effectively you have a metric that allows you to say whether you're good or bad at it. Uh, with the all emphasis on, you know, biases, whatever, whatever, but like ultimately the metric is relatively easy to measure. Granting the metric is really hard to measure because you don't know what success looks like in any meaningful sense, right? I mean, yes, occasionally you might be able to get, you know, support a Da Vinci and that's great. Or, you know, like you do have these, occasional ability to do that, but A, the benefit of that is fairly diffuse to the rest of the world and doesn't really get captured by the person who grants it, unless they're already in an insanely great position. I mean, Medici's, like they, you know, effectively ruled a city state, right? And they looked at their um, granting as both a way to kind of give back to the city, but also to kind of create a bunch of public works that didn't really exist before. So to me, like, the question kind of splits a little bit into two parts. One is what are the obligations for people who can to try and, you know, bring that ethos to bear in the sense that they do want to support people in whatever way, shape or form. Um, how can they actually do that? And it doesn't necessarily even need to be capital, right? Because I am not entirely sure that capital is a binding constraint for a large number of people in order to be able to do this. It's, could be anything from like selection to recognition to network to introductions. Like there's a whole series of things that you would want an ideal grantor to, to do for these people. Number two is the fact that a successful act of giving a grant to someone has no real easy way to kind of confer status back on the person who did the grant. It doesn't really exist. I think it would be great if that existed. It doesn't need to be like, it doesn't need to be perfect. It doesn't need to be dollar amount based. It just needs to be some way to recognize the fact that this person is substantially good at trying to find talent and kind of empower them. I mean, Tyler Cowen is kind of like the 
prototypical example that people talk about in this particular kind of group. Um, and, you know, same for Peter Thiel, right? In the essay that I wrote where he kind of identified sort of 20 people. And it's important to remember how much effort it was on their part. And it's almost not the money at all that kind of made the difference for most of these people. It was an extreme interest in trying to find and select for certain types of folks. Um, but Thiel looked for entrepreneurial talent in, to, to a large extent, right? And Cowan casts a little bit more of a broader net. But what it would take for us to be able to kind of constantly be on the lookout for interesting people and help them out, some of it I feel like is a bit of a mindset change because it's not something you think about very often, right? But I also think that the very idea of Grant as me giving a percentage of a little bit of capital to someone else for them to go and do their passion project is a little bit self-limiting because these days I'm not entirely sure that's the limiting factor for most people. On the topic of investing in people, um, you you have been investing in people and companies for, for years. Uh, and, and we've been focused mostly on looking at and forecasting the future to look backwards for a second. Um, if you were to synthesize kind of the, the key attributes or characteristics of the people you've invested in that have gone on to be successful, uh, what, what would you say those indicators or attributes are? Good question. I think the small end problem still applies. So I'll do the caveat up front. And then I would say that like, uh, the successful people are all different in how they're successful. <laughs> uh, in the sense that it's the successful people I have found are successful because they have found their strength and they've let other people come and help them with their weaknesses. And I find that to be incredibly hard to do for most people, but also like a supremely teachable slash rewarding way to do things. Um, I mean, the best example is one of the com companies I invested in where the, they've gone on to great success. Um, uh, Hypop, like the CEO, is not exactly a... He wasn't a very numbers person when I invested, right? Like, that was not his forte. But he was incredibly good as a people manager to identify problems within the team, to sort them out. Like, he was so good at it. It is incredible. But the fact that, like, he... You know, he could have kind of looked at that and go like, shit, I'm really bad at X or I'm not good enough at X. I need to spend all my effort in trying to kind of up my game. Or he could have said like, this is my strength and I double down behind my strength in order to try to do something. I think it's the latter that really kind of helps folks stand out. I think the strength, find out what your strength is and try to double down behind it is I think, you know, underrated still. Um, the second thing might be, and this is sort of fairly common, is um, uh, perseverance is important, uh, but it's also important to know that, like, you need to change your mind. And they're both contradictory kind of things to put in your head together. But uh, there are folks who are sort of who get good at weaving their way through it. Like, they can change their mind on what they need to build or create or sell. Um, but at the same time, they're fairly persistent in the fact that they know that if they do something sufficiently different, there is a goal there that is worth kind of getting towards. I mean, by no means it is a um, clear yes, because you might not know all the time. 
right? And you might still get it wrong and you might pivot four times and still end up sort of in a bad situation. But broadly, I think making playing with that balance is kind of necessary. You do need to be fairly uncomfortable at most times, even if you're kind of going towards what you want to build, because a little bit of discomfort is nice, right? Because it kind of tells you that like, you can adjust course or you can change something or you can add something in order to sort of do things better. Just yesterday, uh, I think yesterday, you you published your latest essay. Um, I admittedly haven't had a chance to finish it yet. So I'm, I'm kind of mm-hmm. asking for a, a personalized summary here. Um, and I'll, I'll acknowledge that. Uh, yeah. But I believe the theme was around investment strategies and trends within. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious what your own personal investment strategy is. And uh, we'll add the caveat. That this is not advice for, for listeners. But um, given your you have such heavy exposure to venture capital uh, yeah. in your career, I'm curious that in particular, wh- what kind of percentage allocation is that? And then what are the other investments you're looking at? Yeah, I mean. So my personal investment strategy is a little bit in flux and trying to kind of nail that down is partially why kind of I ended up writing that and sort of doing a bunch more work now to try to get to a good answer. Because I think stepping back, at least my broad investment strategy has um, for sort of like personal money, right? Or whatever, like retirement money, as I kind of think of it, is very much to do with the fact that like, you know, there's a certain set of futures that is possible. I have to pick the set of futures that I think are likely to happen and kind of position myself semi-well to kind of take advantage of that. A little bit of capital of that I set aside as like play money that, you know, I'm um, allowed to lose, so to speak, um, where I I can, I can, I get to buy Tesla stock and hold on if I really want to, so to speak, right? But uh, although recently probably a bad, um, bad, uh, uh, way to kind of say it because it's done really well, but you know, high risk trades that I think I know better than the market and I just want to mess with it. Like there's a spot that I kind of do for the rest of it. I'm relatively like, I want to create simple strategies that I can actually sit and let ride. Most of the reason is like, like you said, sort of, I have a relatively heavy exposure to VC, um, uh, sort of, or, or even a tech sector more broadly, but like venture in particular from like the carry that I have that hopefully will come through at some point. And as a consequence, one of the consequences of having that is that I've kind of consciously said, like, I'm not really going to go into taking on even more venture risk with my capital. I just don't have enough sort of time or focus to be able to do it properly. And I do think it's a bit of a, uh, it's very easy to do it badly. It's very easy to say like, oh, I'll invest in these like five things. They just happen to be the things that came in front of me and therefore I should do them. Which like, if you think about it, it's a dumb way to do it, right? I mean, it would be like sitting in front of, I don't know, Bloomberg and saying like, oh, these are the five tickers that happen to show in front of me and I'll invest in two of them. It's like, no, that's dumb. Why would you do that? So uh, with heavy caveats, personal investment strategies, try to create some version of a systematic portfolio. You know, I usually look for all of the usual fundamental indicators that I would have, um, have a sense of what the future is likely to look like. I am more tech heavy. I understand tech, which means I actually like tech, which means I do think it's likely to be a larger portion of life going forward with all the caveats that usually entails these kinds of things, uh, double behind that. 
and then have some sectoral themes that are kind of play behind. It used to be biotech and um, healthcare a little bit more a few years ago. Um, went into energy a little bit sort of a couple of years ago, again, broad-based. But these are sort of small changes at the margins rather than like fundamentally changing the entire pot on a regular basis. I mean, my uh, meta advice for these things is to say like, have a systematic strategy based on the future that you think is likely to happen. Set your allocations and investments according to that strategy. And then ideally forget about it for as much as possible. Because like, you know, A, it's not your day job, unless it is. If it is your day job, then fine, do it. But then, but then you better do it as a day job, right? It requires you to kind of remain on top of every single thing that you actually need to stay on top of with the understanding that even if you stay on top of everything and even if you do all the analysis and even if you invest according to whomever your guru is, you might still end up losing a ton of capital because the markets are incredibly complicated. And that's part of life. So I strip it back to somewhat bare essentials and I want to find a way to kind of do my investing in a much more simplistic fashion that allows me to have more peace of mind, which I think is probably more important than, you know, in my off hours trying to hunt for an extra half a percentage of alpha. You you have a theory of innovation that you've talked about in the past that informs uh, largely, I imagine, this uh, investment strategy. Um, and I'll, I'll give the, the kind of one-liner, but then would love you to, to expand. It's basically that uh, there are massive changes in the combination of either energy, materials, mm -hmm. and or knowledge. Um, I'm curious, what your take is on what the, the kind of limiting factor or the the limiting component today is, but then also what you think uh, the next step step function change we see in innovation, which of those three things it will be a result of? Good question. Um, I think right now our biggest sort of gap is I think in the energy side. Um, and the reason for that is like, you know, if you think about the, like, knowledge, I mean, stepping back, the reason I kind of came to it was like, I looked at all of the industrial revolutions that have happened in the past and then try to figure out what are the big uh, innovations and advancements that each one gave rise to. And then you, when you strip it back, you broadly see that things fall into three buckets, right? One is like material advances, you know, you start figuring out new materials, you create steel, etc. You have energy advances, you come up with new ways of actually creating energy. Um, everything from fission to, you know, solar. And then there's knowledge, which is the ability that you have to actually communicate, collaborate, and use these sort of things that sit around you, as well as the actual intrinsic knowledge that you create to kind of do something with it. You put them together in some ways, you understand that silicon exists that you, you can actually play with. You understand, have the knowledge to figure out what, you know, transistor looks like, or, you know, what a channel ought to be. Um, and you have sufficient energy to be able to create it you know, you get a transistor, right? And you can kind of create chips and you get all of the benefits that come up from that. Today, I think energy is definitely one that we are nowhere close to actually maxing out on. And one of the reasons I think that's a constraint is funnily enough, because through the increased work we are doing on the knowledge side, where which AI plays more broadly in, we are kind of hitting the limits, I feel, or will hit the limits pretty soon of, you know, what level of energy consumption are we actually going to be okay with to use a system for, you know, getting X benefit out of it. And um, 
the only way to solve that is by creating in some way, shape or form enough infrastructure that like you're no longer constrained by, you know, how much energy does it take and like how many GPUs are you actually running to create silly picture number X for whatever reason. Um, materials is an interesting one. It's one of the most underrated and less talked about ones. I've done a post about it a while back. It's like there is actual interesting advances that have gone in the space. I mean, I remember when I grew up, we used to hear a lot about nanotech, which kind of went completely under the radar afterwards, it feels like. But when I looked at it, there was actually a fairly large chunk of innovation that came out of it. There was a national nanotech initiative that Clinton started and then like people funded very small, like, you know, multi-agency collaboration kind of little unit that has had fairly outsized impact, I would say. And now you have, you know, the technology involved in it is helping to create everything from like, you know, adhesives that you put on your hands if you have, you know, if you get a major wound all the way through like medicines, the latest, you know, the vaccines that we get for COVID, for example, require a certain level of, I don't, uh, I, I'm going to mess it up when I'm saying it live, but the, I think the coating for the capsid that actually has, or capsule that actually has to go in, the coating for the vaccine um, requires you to have the ability to create uh, some particular form of manufacturing process, which you can only do if you understand how to do nano manufacturing. Um, I'm sure I messed that up, but like there is enough advances that have happened here, but I feel like a lot of it is still very much behind the scenes, behind the radar. Um, I don't, whether, you know, now that it has a bit more contact with bio side, whether, whether synthetic biology, et cetera, but it'll actually start emerging. I'm semi-optimistic, but I'm not entirely sure. Partially, I'm not entirely sure because I don't know what the benefit of creating that is likely to be, right? I mean, when we discovered plastic, you could instantly see that like, holy shit, this industry is going to go from zero to like effectively saturating the market in like 40 years, which it did to the point where now plastics industry grows at roughly the same rate as GDP growth. Um, and if you think about it, an industry that didn't used to exist and exists effectively as a byproduct of petroleum creation actually grew sufficiently that it saturated the entire market and now grows at the world GDP rate. It's like a crazy thing to think about. So going forward, I would say that energy is number one. I think, you know, probably what we most immediately ought to solve because it also levels up our ability to solve the other two, just kind of the way these things play out. Whether that will simultaneously help us attack something on the material side, unclear, because I don't know that we have a clear um, barrier in front of us on the material side at the moment. But I think energy and knowledge together actually have a pretty interesting role to play, at least in the next couple of decades, I feel like. No conversation between you and I would be complete without talking about AI. Um, you are a, a self kind of stated techno optimist. I think I know the answer to this. Um, but in, in past revolutions, I think there was like the, the most recent digital revolution. There was hopes that uh, the increase in productivity would free up time for humans to focus on other pursuits, more creative fulfillment oriented pursuits that uh, I, I think by and large didn't happen. Uh, there was increased competition, demand, et cetera. Um, do you think it will be different this time? And, and feel free to push back on, on that synopsis, but uh, do you think it will be different this time with AI uh, or how do you see it playing out in regards to the unlocking of productivity, uh, creativity, fulfillment, et cetera? 
I will push back on the first one. I I think we have had a creative explosion with better tools, unlike almost anything else that we've had in the days past. What we have probably not had, and even this I might be wrong about, is um, a commercially successful creative explosion from a large array of artists. And I'm not sure that like those two are the same thing, right? Um, in some ways, it depends a little bit on how you actually view the creative explosion and what the value that's generated from it looks like for the rest of the world. Like, I remember, I don't know, this was whatever, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, if you go to DeviantArt, right, and the website with like digital art that people used to, in those days, you know, create on their computers and upload, not sort of AI-based, they were extraordinary works of art that existed there. And this was made by people just because they wanted to and they wanted to put it up there. Some of them, I'm sure, wanted to go and work in video game design, graphic design, etc. But like the passion that existed and the ability that existed to create mind-blowing art and actually put it up definitely existed, right? And if you think about what it would have taken somebody to do the same thing, I don't know, 40 years ago, it, it's a much higher barrier, right? I mean, like it's the level of infrastructure that is required for somebody to be able to create art of that level is much higher. Um, AI is kind of like the next step in that. I do feel like, you know, the ability for people to create things that they want will increase dramatically as it already has. Um, but whether this means that the commercial ability for a larger chunk of artists to be able to capture that reward exists, Unsure. I see no particular reason why that would happen, quite frankly. Um, and some of it, I think, is to do with the fact that a lot of the value of art, art in particular, same for music, same for writing, same for anything creative, same for movies, whatever. <clears throat> a lot of the success in that comes from, you know, Matthew effect, right? If you are successful and you put something out there, then I want to buy that thing. I don't want to buy something else de novo, right? I mean, art consumption is almost rarely done, you know, in a whatever Seoul's Chinese room sort of scenario where somebody sends you a piece of art and then you look at it and go like, oh, I like it. And then you decide everything else on the basis of it. Whether you like it is intricately tied up with the provenance of the art and like where it was created, who created it, what came from behind it. And some of that provenance comes from the fact that you recognize certain names. Um, like, I remember reading somewhere that like, um, was it an exhibition? Banksy went and sort of put a whole bunch of his paintings under a anonymous name. I think it was in South Bank, but it could be somewhere else. And, you know, people came, they looked at it, maybe two or three pieces got sold and it's Banksy. And each piece that somebody bought for like, whatever, you know, a hundred bucks, whatever, 50 bucks is worth 100x, 200x what they paid for it the art didn't change, right? The people seeing it didn't change, their enjoyment changed because now they know that it's a valuable piece of art and this exists for everything. So like, I think linking the commercial side of it to this almost makes it harder for you to judge as to what the outcome of this is likely to be. But I do think that the average ability for, you know, I use it all the time, right? In the essays I write, I quite often create images that I want associated with that, um, with sort of one of the generative engines. Would I have done that before? No, I didn't even do it before Dali. I used to look for sort of Im images that I think corresponded, but now 
they're actually much better. Like they have an aesthetic to them. They kind of describe something about the thing that I'm talking about. They kind of capture your imagination. When you see it, you stop. And I, I, I just like seeing it, which is, you know, am I putting someone out of work? No, because it was not like I was employing someone before, but I can level up my game, which I wasn't able to do it before, which means if somebody did used to do it professionally, they would have to level up their game even more to be able to compete with the fact that the waterline has been raised. Um, so I don't know where that puts us. I mean, I've had a few kind of interactions with artists sort of online, which have generally been uh, not particularly pleasant because they're fairly upset at the fact that either their work is being used um, without compensation or the fact that like they think most AI generated work is derivative in some sort or like, you know, standing on top of sh shoulders of giants can, in another sense. I, I have various thoughts on that, but I just don't feel like the world where you have a much larger number of people who are able to make their livelihoods from doing art is likely to come about. Um, just because that's not, you know, in a, in a highly liquid market, I am just like, we have seen that not happen. Like when art got easier to create, we didn't see an explosion of commercially successful artists. We saw an explosion of artists, which I think is likely to happen here as well. In closing, what is one question that you would leave me and, and the listeners with? What's the purpose of the question? Anything you want. Hmm. One question that I'd leave you with. What would you build tomorrow? Awesome. Well, Rohit, this has been a blast. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Uh, have a great weekend and uh, we'll be in touch. My absolute pleasure. Great talking to you, man. Yeah.